you were bought at a price. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> We've been going through this series. We're calling it the good, the bad, and the ugly because you see that throughout this book. You see the good, the bad, and the ugly. We've talked about some of the, some of the bad stuff. Uh, especially as we get toward the end of the letter, we're really going to focus on the good stuff or the best stuff that we find in this letter. But the part that we're talking about today is probably the ugliest part of the letter. It's chapters 5 and 6. And if you read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Paul is, is, is addressing some significant issues in this part of the letter that has to be dealt with. Paul has gotten these reports of how... <laughs> The world has seeped into the Corinthian church. You know, we like to think that as a church, we are influencing the world. I believe we have a call to influence the world. But sometimes that gets reversed, and the world ends up influencing us. And there was no question about that in the Corinth church. It wasn't like, well, it seems to be. I mean, it was blatantly obvious that the world had influenced the church there in Corinth. And, and Paul is getting reports of some of the stuff that is taking place here. We've already talked about the divisions that were taking place in the Corinthian church. And Paul addressed those. Today he's going to be talking about uh, some deeper stuff, some significant areas, especially in, in, in the areas of, of sexual immorality and what is going on in this Corinthian church. Now, before we get into the solutions that I believe God, or God and, and Paul supplies for each one of these, first of all, we want to look at the ugly spots. What are the ugly spots in this particular letter? And, and I think we can really break it down to three different sections of this letter. And the first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And Paul writes this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate, a man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Now, Paul is writing, and listen, he's saying, guys, even people outside the church are not doing this. They're not accepting of this. How are you accepting of this? And not only you're accepting, apparently you're proud. You're celebrating this. Now, why would they celebrate this? I'm glad you asked. There is this sense, and sometimes we get this sense as well, that as people who have freedom in Christ, which we do, right? We find our freedom in Christ. Christianity is not about a bunch of rules and regulations and laws that we've got to keep and make sure we do this and don't do that and all of this stuff. And, and sometimes we take that freedom to the point of, well, we, the, we have freedom to sin. When in actuality, the freedom is from sin. Sin is a prison, okay? And, and Jesus gives us the freedom from that sin. Just because Christianity is not about rules and laws and regulations doesn't mean that there's some things we should do and some things we shouldn't do. And I've used a, as an example in the past a marriage relationship. A marriage relationship is not about rules and regulations, is it? I mean, you, guys, you don't put a list of rules on your refrigerator and say, listen here, buddy, if we're going to be married, <laughs> right here's the rules. You've got to follow all these rules. 
And if you don't, you're out, okay? We don't do that. The, re the marriage relationship is about the love and the life and the experience that we, that we get to have with each other. But because of that love for each other, there are certain things we don't do, right? <laughs> and there are certain things that we do because of the relationship. And that's the way it is in Christianity. There are certain things that we do not do or shouldn't do because of the relationship. And there are certain things that we should do because of that relationship. And so these people in, in the Corinthian church... <laughs> had come to this conclusion of, hey, we've got freedom in Christ. We can do whatever we want to. We can live however we want to live. We are in Christ. Therefore, we have that freedom. Not only that, but around this time is the beginning stages of a, a, a belief system that would later be referred to as a heresy entitled as Gnosticism. You see this growing toward the end of the 1st century A.D. and into the 2nd century A.D. But we see some of, the, some of the influence even here because one of the beliefs of the Gnostics was that the, the physical part of who we are and the spiritual side of who we are was so separate that we could live however we wanted to in the flesh because it didn't influence the spirit. Now, like I said, that was, that's not a teaching of the Bible. Matter of fact, we find the Bible in places, and I believe in, in this section of this letter, that refutes that head on. It was a heresy that was beginning to be taught by a, a separate group known as the Gnostics. But we see the influence here with the, with the Corinthian church. Hey, this is the physical body. It, it, everything is okay. The spiritual side, we're good with that. We're going to heaven when we die. We're in Christ. Everything is good. But over here with the physical, man, we are living it up. We've got the freedom. Because it says there, a, a man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Apparently, they were celebrating this. Now, this probably was not his biological mother. Looking at the wording of this, since it's referred to as his father's wife, it was probably a stepmother. Matter of fact, some translations even translate it that way, as stepmother. But still, Paul is saying even people outside the church are not doing things like this. How can you celebrate it in the church? Now, we're going to be looking at some of these, these ugly spots within the Corinthian church. Later on in the message, we're going to be looking at solutions. To these but let me just make a distinction on what I I feel like Paul is pointing out here he is not talking about somebody who is struggling with a sin there is a difference between struggling with a sin and just accepting or even celebrating a sin that we are doing all of us have our sin struggles none of us are free of that Satan still has influence in this world, and because of that, each one of us have those certain things. Now, your sin struggles may not be the same as mine, or they may. We may have similarities there. But the thing that we definitely have in common is that we all have those sin struggles, those, those certain sins that just seem to hang on to us. 
and we pray about it. We take steps to overcome it. We share our struggles with brothers and sisters that we trust that can pray for us and help us in this struggle. And hopefully we're making positive steps in those areas, but we continue to have those struggles. That is completely different than saying, well, I'm free in Christ. So, and, and obviously we're all going to sin because we're all got a sinful nature. And so it's not that big a deal. God will forgive me. It's okay. There's a big difference between that type of sinning and the sinning when we struggle. Okay? And I think Paul, according to the way this is worded, is dealing with sins that have been accepted as a part of their life, that it's okay, and that it could even be celebrated and be proud of because of our freedom in Christ. That is the type of sin uh, that Paul is addressing here. And I believe not only in, this, in these two verses, but throughout this letter. The second ugly spot we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And Paul writes, If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? If you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. <laughs> Apparently, there was so much division in the Corinthian church and so much disputing going on that they began to sue each other. And they were going into the worldly courts in these lawsuits in order to settle these disputes that they have with one another. And Paul is saying, can you not handle this in the church? I mean, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. They don't share our values. They don't have the wisdom of God. And we do within the church. And you're saying, hey, I'm going to take this outside the church in order for the world to settle these disputes? And I think what Paul is encouraging us to do is, if we have disputes within the church, then maybe we should look there first. Maybe we should get others involved. Not, not teaming up, hey, you get on my team, and hey, you get on my team. But, but honestly coming before the church. This is something, we don't talk about this a lot in the church. But Paul is addressing this issue here in the Corinthian church because they were dealing with this. They were having these struggles where they were going outside the church to settle these disputes. And, and some paraphrases refer to this as, as the church getting a black eye because what does the world think of a church who's supposed to be defined and characterized by their love for one another and yet they're going to these worldly secular courts in order to settle their disputes. And so that's another ugly spot we see um, addressed in this, uh, in this letter. And then the next one is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. And Paul writes these words. Surely you must know that people who practice evil cannot possess God's kingdom realm. Stop being deceived. 
People who continue to engage in sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, sexual perversion, homosexuality, fraud, greed, drunkenness, verbal abuse, or extortion, these will not inherit God's kingdom realm. Now, let me just say, none of these are in bold print. None of these have a flashing light behind them and go, this is the big sin. But the church, unfortunately, has traditionally done that with some of these. They're like, oh, these, these are the big sins. This is what the church, we need to stand up against this. We need to do this. And then some of these others, we just kind of let them slide right on by, don't we? Especially the verbal abuse one. You know how many churches have been verbally abusive throughout the years? It's a shame. There's none of these that Paul is saying, this is the big one, and, and, and these are just the little ones. You know, you know what typically is the difference between big sin and little sin? Little sins are the ones I do. Big sins are the ones you do, right? That's what it comes down to when we're talking about things. But Paul's not saying that. He's not saying that any of these sins are unforgivable. There's only one sin that is unforgivable, and that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and it didn't even make this list. Apparently, these were issues that the Corinthians were dealing with. Now, let me also say this. I understand that there is some discussion on at least one of these on the translation of what this actually means. And let me just say, I am open to discussion on that. And I, and I don't mean that as a challenge. I mean that I literally am open if there's something I'm not seeing. And let me, let me say this. The church has gotten it wrong before, okay? So let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. If there's something I'm not seeing, I want to know. But Paul has, has, has kind of listed these sins. And again, I don't believe these are just sins that people are struggling with. I don't, I don't want you to get to the point where you go, oh, I don't know if I should bring this up. I don't want them to kick me out of the church, like Paul said for this one guy. Listen, there is a difference between struggling with sin, which we all do, and just saying, oh, we all sin. It's no big deal. God will forgive us. He's full of grace. It's a big difference. And, and when Paul is talking about, you know, putting this guy out of the fellowship <laughs> earlier in this passage, it wasn't because of his sin struggles. It was because of his sin acceptance. And we've got we to gotta understand the difference in those. So what are the solutions? Well, number one, I think we need to lovingly address the sin. Lovingly address the sin. And, and, and even the way, the, word, uh, the way Paul words this, it may not seem lovingly, but I believe it is. We're going to look at a verse here in a minute that I believe um, uh, enforces that. <laughs> reinforces that but we can't ignore sin now how does this go are we supposed to be judgmental or what no we're not being judgmental we're not judging somebody's salvation but we are following the scripture and what the scripture refers to as as right living and wrong living and and we have to do that as a church a church discipline is not something that that most protestant churches talk about a whole lot. And let me just tell you that any time uh, something like that is addressed, it needs to be addressed with tremendous love, respect, and gentleness, and wisdom, and sensitivity, 
Um, it is not something to be addressed lightly. I want to look at this verse that Paul uses here in, a, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. He's, he's referencing specifically the man who is having uh, sexual relations with his father's wife. And he says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, I will admit to you, I don't know exactly what Paul is saying in the first part of that verse. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I have read several commentaries on this passage. And I don't think anybody else knows what he's saying either. <laughs> I've, I've read them, and they, and they seem to, they, there's a lot of disagreement. What, is, what does this mean, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? But I do believe we can say with confidence that the ultimate goal of whatever that means, by putting them outside of the fellowship, is to eventually lead to repentance. So he comes back to God. So he gets to a place where he's not just accepting this sin as his way of life. That he's repenting of it and he's trying to, to overcome this. Because the second part of this verse says, So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Anytime we take action in the church, the action is not for the intention of tearing somebody down. The intention is for building them up and helping them to overcome and helping them to return to the Lord. Salvation for any action that we take as a church Salvation is our ultimate goal. And I believe that's what Paul is talking about here. And I believe it happened. Because if you flip over to the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, it's, you know, called 2 Corinthians in the Bible, it was written several months, less than a year after this first letter was written. And in, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Verses 5 through 8, Paul leads up to this saying, you know, the, the last letter that I sent you may have caused you some grief and some sorrow. Really, Paul, you think that, uh, you know, some of the stuff you address in there may have been a little hard to swallow. He admits that, and he admits, you know, some of the stuff that he suggested in there may be difficult. But then he goes on to say this, and, and, and listen to this. If anyone has caused grief, he is not so much grieved to me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Even though many of the commentaries may disagree on what that passage meant back in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Most of them seem to agree that this is probably talking about the guy that Paul told to disfellowship him out of, out of the church. That he's probably addressing this guy and he's saying, it's good, bring him back in, reaffirm your love for him. I believe he's repented, he's ready to deal with this, bring him back in to the fold there's this there's some of the commentaries say that by disfellowshipping this guy it, it would help bring him to the realization that what he was doing was wrong and needed to be changed it wasn't just so that we could throw him to the wolves it's so that he could come to the realization that what he was doing was wrong and needed to change 
And if this is who, the, who Paul is referring to in the second letter to Corinthians, it seems to have worked. And he's repented and he has come back. The solution is we need to, a lovingly, need to lovingly address the sin. Second solution. Lovingly address disputes within the church. Listen, sometimes that happens. Sometimes it happens. We have disputes within the church. Even though we are, we are bought by a price, we belong to Jesus, we've still got this flesh side of us, and we have disagreements with each other, and sometimes even to a legal degree, we have disagreements. And Paul is saying to handle those within the church for a few reasons. For one, the world typically does not share our values. And so they're not going to address the dispute in, in a godly, biblical way all the time. The way that we can within the church. Hopefully, if we're, if we're following the Scriptures, be able to address that within the church. Second of all, most of the time when we're taking somebody to court, it's a matter of revenge, isn't it? Oh, I'll show them. I'll sue them. They, they won't treat me like this. I'll sue them. Matter of fact, Paul goes on to say in that letter, if you've read it ahead of time, you've read this, it'd be better for you to just be done wrong and cheated than to take these disputes to a worldly court. Just accept it and go on. But better yet, if you can handle it within the church, handle it within the church. Now, understand he's not talking about disputes with people outside the church. In those legal matters, he's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ and oftentimes it is it is a revenge issue and the third thing that happens not only with the church but also with those outside the church is that it um it creates it, it makes us focus more on our problems than our purpose we focus more on our problems than our purpose and the world begins to look at us and focus on our problems rather than our purpose our problems is, hey, we have these disputes. We've got to do them. We can't sell them. We've got to go to court and handle it and, and, and all this stuff. And the whole purpose of the church is to love each other and to spread the good news of the gospel together in all of this. And we lose that when we have these disputes with one another. The third solution to dealing with the ugly spot is lovingly remind each other God paid a steep price for you. God paid a steep price for you. Whatever sin that may be in your life, listen, don't just accept it. You may struggle with it, and we're not here to put you down. Okay, we're here to help. I need your help with my sin struggles. As we move forward, one of, the, one of the purposes of small groups is to be able to, to more intimately help each other with our sin struggles as we move forward because we need that help. But may we never get to a point where we say, well, sin's just a part of life. It's okay. I accept it. Because I think that's what Paul is really putting down here. It's not the sin struggles. But in those sin struggles, we need to realize that we are bought with a steep price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 says, and that is what some of you were in reference to the verses 9 and 10 where it had those lists of sins. He says, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, 
you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Because of what Jesus did upon the cross, you've been cleansed of that, you've been freed from that, you've been washed of that, you've been able to come out of that. And listen, it still may have a hold on you from time to time, but there is something that is in you when you accept Jesus that gives you the empowerment to be able to overcome in a better way than you otherwise would have. We still struggle with it, but we've got a power within us to overcome those things than we do outside of Christ. We have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified in the name of, Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love the way Paul closes out this section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. He says, do you not know? That your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. <laughs> Jesus paid the ultimate price. It wasn't just an expensive price. It wasn't just a high price. It was the ultimate price that Jesus paid for us, not for freedom to sin but freedom from sin because that sin is a prison it's a chain it keeps us back it keeps us from moving forward it keeps us from growing and Jesus died upon the cross to free us from that prison it doesn't free us to do it hey I'm free in Christ let's let's party you know have a party, yes, but not a party for sin, a party for God and what He's doing in us and through us because He has paid the ultimate price so that we could do that. I love the way the, uh, the Passion Translation puts these two verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Have you forgotten that your body is now the sacred temple of the Spirit of holiness who lives in you? You don't belong to yourself any longer. For the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside your sanctuary. You realize the sanctuary is not this building we are in. The sanctuary is where God lives inside of us. We are the sanctuary. You were God's expensive purchase, paid for with tears of blood. So by all means, then, use your body to bring glory to God. Because of that price, we are not our own. We belong to Jesus. You are not your own man. And we like, I'm my own man. Not if you're a follower of Jesus. I'm my own woman. Not if you're a follower of Jesus. You belong to Jesus. He paid the ultimate price for you. He is working in you and through you to do amazing things. And the sin in our lives is keeping us chained back, keeping us imprisoned from moving forward. But Jesus paid the price, and that Holy Spirit is living inside of us. The very Spirit of God is living inside of us, giving us the empowerment to do things that we otherwise could not do because the power of God is working in us and through us. It all comes down to the fact that you were bought at a high price, a steep price that Jesus was willing to pay just for you. We can get rid of the ugly spots in a church and in our individual lives by realizing that we are bought with a price.
and using our bodies individually and collectively as a church for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that, uh, that we're, <laughs> we're able to even learn from the bad examples in churches in the Bible and, and the correction that you gave them there, dear Father. And God, I pray that you, you help us to heed that and learn from that and grow from that. God, we thank you that you have paid the ultimate price for us in your son, Jesus. Help us to never forget that. Help us to live in a way that reflects that each and every day. Help us to deal with the sin in our lives in a way that reflects that each and every day. Help us to, to go about our day in our, in our workplaces and in our families in a way that reflects that you have paid the ultimate price. God, help us in our church on Sundays and other small groups and other times that we're together. God, help us to reflect the fact that we were bought with a huge price, the very life of your son. And it's in his precious and powerful name that we pray. Amen.